Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you've given us the opportunity to have something bigger than ourselves in our life, specifically to have a relationship with you, but secondarily to use our lives as you would work in and through us to benefit others, to get our eyes off of even ourselves and onto you and the others that you've put in our lives from a perspective of how can we be used of you to impact them favorably in this life, but also in the spiritual sense for all of eternity by being a light to them with the truth from your word. Pray that we would see that we ultimately have, a, we're blessed to have that ministry to one another. Thank you that we could even come together in ministry to minister to young people here for the last week with Bible camps. Pray that you would undertake to bring a harvest from the seeds that were planted, the water that, the seeds that were watered, and even the rows that were hoed, so to speak, and you would undertake to bring a great increase and a great harvest from those investments. Pray that you'd undertake here this morning as we continue with our study on Psalm 23 to give me wisdom so the words that are said are accurate and clear. Pray that they would be encouraging and uplifting, challenging, even convicting to those who are here. Pray for the Sunday school teachers that you'd give them wisdom as well and that the young people would have ears to hear, that they wouldn't be here just to have, uh, because they have to be here or to have things going one ear and out the other, but they'd come to learn more about you and they'd leave a little bit closer to you with a little bit more understanding of you than they had when they came here. Pray that this church family could be known as being a light for you, that we wouldn't get distracted by the things going on in our own lives, our circumstances, our trials, or even our petty disagreements with each other, but we would stay focused on the prize, which is to shine the spotlight on you, to lift you high. Pray that Everything that is said and done here would be to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is He Makes Me Lie Down. And there's actually a to lie down if you're reading it from the text, but it fit better for me to have it be He Makes Me Lie Down. And like I said before we started our sermon here this morning, we began this series on Psalm 23 last week, and we looked at Psalm 23.1, and if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 23 so you have it in front of you. We mentioned last week, or the, the focus of our message last week, was that Psalm 23.1 acts as a summary statement for the whole psalm. And so as you read it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and we observed that many translations or that the impact of that statement is that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And we talked about how God has undertaken to meet all of men's need, not just some of men's needs, but all of them, their needs in the past, their needs in the present, their needs in the future, and that the shepherd, the good shepherd, met man's needs as it related to our problem with sin by giving his life for the sheep, and that Jesus died in the place of those who were undeserving so that we could have access to a relationship with God himself and spend the rest of this life enjoying intimate fellowship with him and look forward to the rest of eternity to be spent with him in the place that he has gone to prepare for us, the mansions that he's prepared for all of those who have put their trust in him. But then we focused on how because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing in this life that God has undertaken to provide for and meet 
my every need. And we talked about how now the rest of the psalm is going to pull that out with more specific examples. So we looked at that because just as shepherds provide everything that sheep need, the Lord undertakes to meet every need that we have with a primary focus, of course, on our spiritual needs. But we saw that it wasn't exclusively our spiritual needs. We saw that God even undertook for the physical needs of his disciples. And he says that if, said that if I undertake so that birds have nests and fox have, foxes have holes, that I can under, and I know every hair that's on your head, I can undertake to meet your physical needs in addition to your spiritual needs as well. So now as we look at this remainder of Psalm 23, God's going to now elaborate on the provision, instruction, protection, direction, correction, and restoration that his children enjoy because of his shepherding of them. So you have this picture. You have this metaphor of a shepherd and sheep because God in his wisdom determined that that's something that we could understand. That in looking at the relationship between sheep which are completely incapable of survival apart from the provision and care and direction of the shepherd, that people are just the same. That we would have no way to thrive apart from somebody undertaking to provide for our needs in ways that we never could. And if you're somebody who is somewhat new to the Bible, and you say, I have a hard time with the Bible because as I look at it, it's tough to just jump into any different part of it and make sense of it. One way that will help you make sense of the Bible is to think of the Bible in terms of it's a book that has a beginning and it has an end. It has a theme. And the theme is that mankind, apart from God's provision, is hopeless and helpless and hellbound. God has undertaken from the beginning to the end to show men through many different examples, many different dispensations, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot enjoy life the way I intended. You will not thrive. You will wallow. You will be miserable. You will be sad. You will spend all of eternity ultimately apart from me because you will not be able to meet your own needs. And so a common theme that you find from the first pages to the last pages is God trying to show us through many different time periods, through many different nations, primarily, of course, Israel, but other nations as well, by many different people, characters, that somebody who is seeking to do life or live life independent from God will not thrive. But the man who is walking by faith in complete dependence on God to do for him what he could never do for himself, that is the definition of a man of faith who is operating in dependence on God. And God has tried to show us all the way through that apart from that mentality, apart from that faith rest in my provision to meet your need, you're lost. There's no hope. But with me leading, with me protecting, with me guiding, with me enabling, with me correcting, with me disciplining, with me restoring, life can be amazing. But only for the sheep that's willing to arrange themselves under the care of the good shepherd. And so that's ultimately what each one of these clauses is going to bring out further, that when the Lord is my shepherd, now, Positionally, God is your shepherd the moment you put your faith in him. 
So you could say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That's true in a positional sense. And what we mean by a positional sense is that at a moment in time, a person can go from being identified with a race of sinners, being identified with Adam, being identified with this estrangement or separation for God, to being identified as a child of God. And for those of you who have never heard that before, the reality is that man is born separated from God. The reason is that man is born identified with sin, and in addition to that, every man sins. The Bible tells us in Romans that all have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, and it goes on to say that the situation is even more dire than that. Because the Bible says that even our works of righteousness, our attempts at righteousness, they fall woefully short. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean fallen a little bit short. That means not hitting the mark at all. So if all of our works of righteousness, meaning our best efforts at making ourselves acceptable to God, fall so short that they're described as not even making, hitting the mark, then what is the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that God being perfectly holy... God being perfectly righteous, God being perfectly just, he can't just ignore sin. A just God can't ignore sin. A righteous God can't be in the presence of unrighteousness. Same with a holy God. A holy God can't be defiled by sin. So if every man on the planet, their best stuff stinks and they're born identified with sinfulness, then they're born separated from God because God can't have anything to do with unrighteousness or sinfulness. But even worse than that, God can't overlook sinfulness either. Because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. is separation for all of eternity from God and his holiness and his righteousness. So God had to make a way. And God made a way for man to have a solution to the problem that he was born into. So man was born into this position where effectively he was drowning. He was hopeless. And God in his love said, I don't want to leave you that way. But the Bible said that there's none righteous. There's none that even seeks after God. So man couldn't arrange for his own rescue because he wasn't even interested in God is what the Bible says. But God was intensely interested in him. Isn't that beautiful? Mankind is not born interested in God, but yet God is intensely interested in him. And so because of that, God and his love wanted to make a way. Most of you understand how he made a way, but that's what Christianity is all about. It's about Christ being a Christ one. And so Christ being the central figure, figure of history, he's the, the penultimate building point. That's the climax of the whole story is that a rescuer, a redeemer would come and that person was Jesus, the God himself, the unique God who became man so that he could die in the place of sinners. Because there was only two options. If justice demanded that there be a payment made for sin, that the debt that was owed by sin be satisfied, it had to be satisfied by either you or somebody who is a substitute for you. So it's not that complicated. Either you were going to have to pay the debt that you owed, which was all of eternity separated from God, or somebody else would have to do that for you. But the only one who had enough righteousness so that the righteousness that they had in their account was greater than the unrighteousness or the debt that was owed by all men, there was only one that could do that, and that was God himself. So Jesus becomes the unique God-man. He's described as the Lamb of God. Why? Because lambs were pictures in the Old Testament of a innocent that was perfect and spotless and being sacrificed in the place of the guilty. So as the innocent lamb would die and the blood was shed, it was a beautiful picture that someone else is going to have to take the place of the guilty, otherwise the guilty is going to have to die. And so the Bible 
presents this picture of substitution. How God, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus would take your place. And so Jesus died a death he didn't deserve so that you could live a life you don't deserve. He didn't die for his sins. He died for the sins of the whole world, but specifically he died for your sins. So as he went to the cross, he went there willingly because he loved you so much and he went there on a mission, a mission to take your place. And as he died on the cross, all of your sins were poured out on him and he was separated from his father. And as he died in your place, he said, it is finished. The debt that you owe has now been paid by my death in your place. So now you don't need to die. But as we explained to the young people at camp, that's a great story. If the story ends there, that's just a great story. Man was in a prob- man was in a pickle. Man was in a predicament. Man was drowning. God sent a rescuer. Man had a debt he could never pay. God came and he paid that debt for him. But if the story ends there, the sacrifice of Christ has never been applied to your account. The Bible says that the way that you get in on this, the way that you get that blood credited to your account so that your debt can be satisfied is that you have to accept what Christ has done. You have to place your confidence and faith in that. So, you don't do that over and over and over again in a positional sense. At a point in time, you have to be convinced to put your trust in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That means to accept that there's nothing that you can add to it. That's why the Bible said it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. Mercy means God, in his tender loving kindness and compassion for us, giving or withholding judgment that is deserved by putting that judgment or paying that judgment himself. So the truth is presented that God took your place. If you will only believe this, you can be saved. So we have it on the wall here that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes would not perish but would have everlasting life. But what triggers this? There's some that believe. That means they're convinced to put their trust in something. There's some that don't. There's some that put all of their eggs in one basket, put all of their trust in what Christ has done. And there's some that try to piecemeal it. They try to say, I'll put my, some of my trust in what Christ done and then I'm going to work on doing the rest myself. But the Bible says that there's nothing righteous about you that even your best efforts at righteousness fall short. So how could you improve upon something that Jesus said was perfect? And the answer is you can't. And worse, not only do you not improve upon it, you ruin it. You pollute it. You defile it. You taint it. The moment you try to add one work to God's grace is not grace anymore. For something to be grace, it has to be a gift. For it to be a gift, it has to be freely given and freely received. So at a point in time, you have to decide... Am I going to quit trusting in myself, my religious efforts, my human efforts, my, my something else, someone else, whatever it might be? Am I going to put my trust and faith exclusively in what Christ has done for me? Well, the Bible says that the moment you do that, you're born into God's family. You experience this spiritual birth. That's your spiritual birthday. And some of you know the exact day that you got saved. I don't. At some point in time as a child, I heard this message. I don't recall disagreeing with it. I don't recall arguing about it. At some point in time, though, I reached an age of understanding. I understood it well enough that it became personal to me. That, that God said, that's, that's when you were saved. But he didn't tell me. He didn't send me a postcard. I don't have a plaque at home 
I don't have a certificate that I hung on the wall. But I know that at some point in time when I was quite young, I believed that Jesus took my place and paid my debt. And I understood that I couldn't do anything to fix something that, or improve on something that was perfect. So that day I became God's child, whatever day that was. Some of you know the date. Some of you could celebrate your spiritual birthday. But that's the day you became a child of God. That's the day that you became a sheep of the good shepherd. And as you think about that, that's positional truth, that there's these points in time, this point in time for each individual person who is saved that they become a lamb or a sheep that's in the sheepfold of the shepherd. And so then practically speaking, though, the rest of your life here on earth is going to be spent asking questions, not about are you a sheep being led by the shepherd or a sheep of the shepherd. You are. Positionally, you are a sheep of the shepherd. But are you willing to allow the shepherd to direct and undertake and provide in your life, or are you going to go through life pretending like you're the sheep of someone else's sheepfold? Taking your direction and instruction and correction and provision from somebody else. Seeking to go go it alone. Trying to squeak under the fence all of the time. Let's get a show of hands for the fence squeakers. Come on, every one of you. All right. It's all of you, by the way. You know, they're always trying to squeak through. Anyone who's been in, I'm not a farmer, but I mean, I've seen dogs do this. I've seen anyone. If you make a fence, I've seen kids do this. If you build a fence, haven't, how many of you have seen a toddler trying to work their way out of a playpen? Huh? How many of you caged over the top of that playpen so they couldn't get out? You're sick. That, that's sick. <laughs> I, saw the, I saw they make those products where you actually clip some sort of a top to these things now so that the kid can't escape. I had an escape artist on my hands. I digress. By nature, we're all like that. And that's effectively what the rest of the psalm is about. It's because the Lord is your shepherd positionally, you lack nothing. But the question now becomes for the rest of these passages is, are you going to take in the truths of what God has done for you, what he continues to do for you? And are are you going to practically go through life taking advantage of this relationship that God wants to have with you in time and to allow him to direct and lead and provide in a way that you could never do for yourself? And so it's important to understand the difference between positionally there's a point in time where I become a sheep who is a sheep of the shepherd. But then practically, he continues to do all these things for me. But will I appropriate those things by faith? Will I take advantage of it? Will I get in on it? And that's what we've been doing here or we're going to do here for the rest of Psalm 23 as we pick up here with a specific illustration, the first specific illustration about God's complete provision for his children here in verse 2. So let's read verse 2. So the Lord, because the Lord is my shepherd, or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I lack nothing. Verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And for those of you who thought we were going to cover a whole verse, you were wrong. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So let's dive into this a little bit. He Let's start with that. He, of course, is a continued reference to the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, and now every other reference that says he, which is going to be he makes me lie down, he leads me beside the still waters, he restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice all of those personal pronouns. But there's a lot of personal pronouns with me and my, too, that we'll see as you go through the rest of this 
psalm as, as this is a very personal, intimate God that we have. It's not, he's not a distant and far away God, though in some ways I guess he is distant and far away too, but he's also close. He's everywhere. And so though he covers the, the full range, the full gamut of everything in existence, he's also, but does that help you that much? I don't know. It doesn't help me that much. I guess I don't care about the faraway galaxies. The bigger question is, is he right with me? And the answer to that is, yes, he is. He's with me all of the time. And so as the shepherd is with me, his presence is among me. It's next to me. It's near me. When I'm willing to lean into him, draw nearer to him, I get to enjoy this relational closeness, this intimacy with, with him that, frankly, what a great tie in this whole psalm is to the First John study that we just got done about how God has this intense desire to live life with us. And this is, I would say, just an Old Testament uh, approximation of that or similar passage anyway talking about this closeness of relationship that we can have with God and the ramifications of it in terms of how he provides to meet our every need so he makes me to lie down in green pastures he again referencing the Lord now I want to say this about the Lord I don't know probably most of you understand that but the Lord when we see the word Lord in the Old Testament we're talking about the personal name for God that's actually this word Yahweh. And so he is always, so the Lord there in verse 1 is Yahweh, God's personal name. And then as you say he, it's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Each time you say ye, he is referencing the Lord's personal name, Yahweh. So there, although there are many variations of, of God's name used with many different descriptors that are attached to them, so Jehovah is a Latin translation of Yahweh, Jireh, means God provides. So God, that's Yahweh, provides. So they're not really new names per se, but they're names with a descriptor attached to them. And there's many, many of them that come out in the Bible. And Eric, as he went through a study of God's attributes, he keeps bringing out different examples of how God could be referred to. But mainly it's a way of saying God and then some attribute or characteristic or descriptor of God that helps us to see that particular quality of God more so than just God's personal name, which is, which is Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is used by far and away more than any other name for God uh, 6,826 times. So 6,826 times. It's his personal name, and because of that, it's used most often. And God chose to be known by this name. Nobody came up with this name for God. God chose to be na- known by the name Yahweh. And I want you to do some page turning. I will put it up here, but we haven't been doing enough of it. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 3. And then if you don't happen to have a Bible, here it is. But those of you who are already turning, finish the job. We were doing some sword drills with the kids at camp. I'll tell you, as things become more and more digital, kids are losing and adults are losing their ability to navigate where things are at in a hard, co- hard copy of the Bible because when you go to put something in on your phone or your tablet or your computer, it gives you all of the books and you just click on the one and then you click on the chapter and then you click on the verse. So in some ways you lose your understanding of where things are at. But Exodus chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. This is the passage where God gave his name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, and that's the word Yahweh, the Lord. So where you see that word, the Lord, every time you see that in your Bible, it's the original name for God, Yahweh, which is, which is spelled Y-A-H-W-E-H. But every time you see the Lord, that's what it's, it is, God's personal name. So say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now catch this. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation, Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord. Now, when they translated the Bible into Latin, they took the words or the let not the words the letters there are no there are no uh, there's no other way to do it I guess and they came up with Jehovah so every time you see Jehovah it's interchangeable with the Lord and the Lord and Jehovah and Yahweh all refer to this personal name for God so they took the Latin letters for the for these the letters that were in the original text and they translated them into Latin and that's how we got Jehovah. But note this. God uses I am and the Lord, his personal name interchangeably. So that's what helps us to understand what God really means by his personal name, why he picked this name. Because he says, I am has sent you, and then he says Jehovah for the, f- or not Jehovah, but he says Yahweh for the first time there with the Lord, the God of your fathers, and that's going to be your name. So in the same passage, you see that he refers to himself as I am, and also then as Yahweh, or in our translation, the Lord. And so that's very interesting because it helps us with our definition of what does God's personal name really refer to. And so there you have it, Yahweh. The name Yahweh speaks of the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God. So I am who I am. I am, or just plain I am has sent you. Meaning I've always been. I didn't need anything else. I'm fully self-sufficient and self-existent. So then all others are dependent on him for life and breath and existence because he's the one who is eternally existent and eternally sufficient. So He is dependent upon no one, but we are dependent upon him because he's the ultimate creator God, Yahweh. And so I think that's interesting because that is something that when we're talking about our God, what are we really understanding? This is our personal God, and this is his personal name. And so that's the name he uses here in Psalm 23 for the Lord, and that's what David is referring to each time he uses the word he then to refer to Yahweh makes me to lie down in green pastures. This is a side note, but it's interesting. Jesus, being a part of the eternal Godhead, also was described as or with the term shepherd. And here's one that we saw last week, John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Well, that's in relation to Jesus. This is another piece of evidence that points to the divinity of Jesus Christ. One of the number one things that was under attack, especially when Christ was walking the earth and in the early church was the deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. And certainly he's aware and knows of the references to the Lord Jehovah by his personal name saying that he's the shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd. And so now comparing himself as a shepherd saying, I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I am also God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm one with the Father. I'm inseparable 
from the Father. Now listen to this as here we have it in Hebrews, Jesus again being referred to. So now not, not as the good shepherd, but the great shepherd. Hebrews thirteen twenty through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, we have, and when the chief shepherd appears. So good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That is Peter writing to church elders, telling them to don't become weary in well-doing. Don't get burnt out. Why did he have to say that? Because that's what naturally happens. But he says when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory. So that's the he here. He is Jehovah God. This is the Lord God, Yahweh. God using his personal name. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So we look at this word makes because I think this could be easily misunderstood or misconstrued. It does not have the sense of he forces me to lie down. This I found fascinating as I was studying this, this verse. He makes me to lie down. It almost has a sense of forces me to lie down, but that's not what this word means at all. It does not have the sense of he forces me to lie down. The meaning is focuses more on a shepherd finding a place, in this case it's green pastures, where the sheep can lie down and rest. He makes it possible for me to lie down is the implication of this word or of this phrase. Now that kind of creates a more personal, a, a softer relational feel to this. Now could God make you to lie down? Well, sure. But that's not what this is about. The psalm is about God's provision to meet every need of the sheep. So he makes it possible for me to lie down is more the idea. The loving shepherd makes lying down possible through the provision of a suitable place to lie down. And some translate this as he lets me rest. So some versions of the Bible have it that way. He lets me rest. Who could use a little bit of rest? Well, anyone who was at camp can, I can tell you that. That's physical realm. Who could use a little bit of rest in their spiritual life? Everyone, right? He makes it possible for me to lie down, and we'll get to that here, but we, won't, we don't want to skip across this. He makes me See, this me part of it brings out the personal, intimate, and relational nature of David's view of God. The Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah God, he makes it possible for me to rest, to lie down and rest. That's how it will end. But it's me. It's not about he makes it possible for you. It's not he makes it possible for others. He makes it possible for my neighbor He makes it possible for me to lie down and rest. And if you don't read this psalm with that personal flavor that David has, that relational flavor that David has, you're missing it. David is saying, he's not just a God, he's my God. 
He's just not in control and the one who is supremely capable of providing, he's providing for me. He's undertaking for me. He's interested in me. He's faithful to me. He loves me. He wants to live life with me. You're never going to get anywhere in your faith growth, in your faith life. You're never going to grow if you don't understand that the Bible is not about others. It's about you. Yes, it's, it, it has information about others, but it has information about others with the, the goal of bringing you to Christ, bringing, bringing you to a point where you're living life with God, experiencing intimate fellowship with Him and looking forward to an eternity spent with Him in heaven. Now you're getting somewhere. When you see that the Bible's not about stories, it's about a story of how God rescued you. It's not just a collection of stories. It's just not information. It's just not be about being a theological student, a seminary student of some kind. It's not academic. It's God writing a love letter to you about his great care Interest, desire, provision for you and how he wants to live with you. So he makes me. One writer calls this the he and me psalm. The he and me psalm. He is focused on his personal relationship with God, David is. He's focused on God's provision for him individually. The Lord is my shepherd is how he started. Now he makes it possible for me. Faith in the abstract is not useful at all. Personal faith, though, is life-changing. You say, I don't like my life the way it is right now. And I'd say to you, O ye of little faith. That's what Jesus said to his followers. My life isn't what I'd like it to be. Okay. Except for Jesus says that if you're living life with me, it can't be improved on. Paul says that in every circumstance, I've learned to find contentment, which is ultimately learning to trust God that regardless of my circumstances, I can enjoy, I can enjoy him, I can enjoy his peace, I can know his peace, I can know his rest, I can know his comfort, regardless of the circumstances. It can be life-changing, but it requires personal faith abstract faith forget about it just keep going through the motions see if that gets you anywhere tell you what it hasn't gotten you anywhere I know that because it never got me anywhere it never will get you anywhere just going through the motions but if you taste and see that the Lord is good if you see that he's good all of the time that he's on your side that he wants to live life with you and if you actually start involving him in your life in your thinking taking him with you to the places and the spaces that he directs you, all of a sudden, that's what he's talking about when he says, I didn't want you to just have life. I wanted you to have life that is abundant. It's overflowing, he says. My cup is overflowing. We'll see later in this same psalm. Now, he, Yahweh, makes it possible for me, a personal, personal loving, caring God, to lie down. And this focuses on peaceful rest and sleep. 
And the reason that this metaphor is so good is because sheep naturally struggle to rest. As I studied this, I read about that. An experienced shepherd identified things that prevent sheep from lying down and resting. And he says, unless these things are met, sheep cannot rest. And he had more than these, but these are the ones I thought were the most important. He says, these are fear, tension, and hunger. If these are present, then sheep will not rest. They will not lie down unless they're free from fear, free from tension, and free from hunger. So we'll jump into fear here a little bit first. Sheep refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. They are timid and easily panicked animals. Sounds a lot like me. They're prone to anxiety and worry. They're prone to restlessness. But the reason is well-founded. As long as there is any suspicion of danger, sheep stand up ready to flee for their lives. Why? It's well-founded. They are helpless, timid, feeble creatures whose only defense is to run. If you don't recognize the correlation between that and you, you have a too high a view of yourself. That's why Jesus refers to us as the sheep of his pasture. That's why the metaphor is found throughout the Bible. There's so many correlations between sheep and us. But they're helpless, timid, and feeble creatures. Sometimes we think that we're so capable of protecting ourselves, undertaking for ourselves. It doesn't take much, though, to remind us that we're not really in control of anything that there are so many things that happen in our lives that we could never do anything about. And that the things that we think we're doing something about, in fact, we're not really having the impact we think we are. Oftentimes when we think we're helping, we're actually making it worse. That's how goofy we are. That's how flawed our understanding is, that even when we think we're helping, we're actually making things worse. And sheep are just like that. But because of that, they're always on guard. It's hard for them to relax. It's hard for them to rest. Because... They know that they cannot easily protect themselves. And that's why if one pack of wolves, or even one, I was reading examples of this, that one dog in one night killed 275 sheep. This, this uh, shepherd was recalling that incident happening. One dog. It shows you just how defenseless sheep are. For good reason, they have trouble when they're fearful of laying down and resting now, that sounds a lot like our lives, doesn't it? How many spend many nights tossing and turning in fitful sleep? And although there's some legitimate medical issues that can cause restless sleep, I would say way more often that fitful sleep is caused by underlying worry, anxiety, and fear. Same as with the sheep. Unless something is done to take away that fear, they cannot rest so then what is the solution trusting the shepherd's presence protection and provision trusting the shepherd's presence protection and provision that's why a child has no trouble no matter what's going on around them falling asleep in their parents arms you seen that before doesn't matter what is happening doesn't matter how much chaos is happening doesn't matter how much danger there is 
if their parent is holding them tightly, that child can fall asleep. Why? Because of the presence of their protector. The presence of the one that they depend on for their safety. And that same shepherd that talked about how sheep cannot go to sleep unless they're free from fear, he says this, In the course of time I came to realize that nothing so quieted and reassured the sheep as to see me in the field. Just the presence of the shepherd was enough to put the sheep at ease. So then you think about an application to our Christian life. In the Christian's life, there is no substitute for the keen awareness that your shepherd is nearby. Christ's presence should dispel the fear, the panic, and the terror of the unknown that is making you restless. He makes it possible for me to lie down. There's no reason to fear. Why should I be fearful when the one who can drive away all fear is with me and never leaves me or forsakes me? So there's really only two options then. Either live with a sense of anxiety, fear, and foreboding, or in a sense of quiet rest. And the question is really, which is it going to be? And you can appropriate the rest that the shepherd provides by making it possible for you to lie down when you're focused on his presence, when you're focused on him, when you're seeing that if he's there, who, who should I be afraid of? Why should I be afraid of anyway? I will not fear what, what can man do to me? When God is present with me, what can man do to me? And the answer is nothing. And so if nothing can harm me while he's, I'm in his presence, and if nothing can separate me from his love, and if he's all-powerful, and he's the one who is undertaking to protect me, then can I experience this restful sleep? And the answer is, of course. The question is, will you? The other thing is this tension and fear that the shepherd talked about, hindering sheep from relaxing or sleeping. And because of social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from tension or, fri- or friction with other sheep. Amongst sheep, this is most often caused by, this will be a big surprise to you, stubbornness, rivalry, and strong personalities. Man, I feel like I've experienced some of that. Isn't that what causes tension and, fr- and friction? Stubbornness, rivalry, strong personalities. Co- of course, a heaping dose of pride in all of those things, right? Has to be my way. Each sheep seeks to establish some measure of status through self-assertion. And I guess that goes on within the sheep flock. And until the shepherd can help set things in order and put sheep in their place, which is what the shepherd ultimately does, the sheep will have that tension and friction with one another where they're trying to flex their muscle a little bit. They're irritating each other. And it makes rest impossible as the focus is on one's irritation with others or defending one's rights and position within the pecking order instead of being able to truly rest. I can't let my guard down. I can't truly rest because if I do, somebody else is going to come along and they're going to displace me in my spot in the pack, so to speak. And the question is, does that happen in human flocks? The answer is yes. Regardless of the venue, interactions with other people, remember that all those people are sinners. In the case of a church, hopefully they're saved sinners, but they're still sinners. 
Interactions with people invariably cause aggravation, frustration, annoyance, petty irritation. That's something common within a flock. So what's the solution to that? I'm not going to be irritated with you if my focus is on him. It's because I'm focused on you or focused on others around me that I allow those things to interfere with my relationship with the Lord. When I'm focused on the Lord, he naturally makes those things seem irrelevant, seem much smaller than I otherwise would make them out to be. We're the kings and queens of making things out to be more than they are. That's what we do by nature. My daughter says, calls it being dramatic. She says, I'm dramatic. That's making more of something than was necessary. That's what people do. Now, you're not going to be doing that, though, if you're focused on him. If you can get your eyes off of yourself and others and your circumstances and your trials, that's not going to be true in your life. And it's awesome to think about when I have my eyes focused on him, then this fold, this sheepfold, this group of believers will be accomplishing its purpose, the purpose that God has. Because is it God's will for there to be tension and friction between believers? It's a trick question to some extent. Not negatively, no. Does he mind friction in general? Any amount of friction? Is any friction bad? Answer is no. How do you think iron sharpens iron? Do you think there's any friction in that process? The rubbing makes the shine, right? As metal grinds along its, another piece of metal, does it sharpen it? If it's the right kind of process, yeah. If you're doing it right, yeah. But how often do we do friction right? Can you do friction correctly? Yeah. Can you do friction in a way that's positive? Sure. Can you do it as under the Lord? Yeah. Can you do friction in a way that absolutely destroys a flock? Causes tension in a way that's unhealthy? Causes disquiet? Causes problems? Yeah, you can. I'll tell you what, more often than not, that's the way we go about doing friction. We're not very good at it. We're really not that good at sharpening. We're good at taking chunks out of the adjacent piece of metal. We're not good at gently sliding alongside of it in a way that's intended to benefit everybody. It's intended to lift up. It keeps the focus on the Lord. We're very, very bad at that, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be that way. Here's a couple of verses about God's will for believers as it comes to tension and friction. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27 says, the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That doesn't speak of tension and friction. It speaks of unity. You see that in Philippians 2.2, 2, a little bit further along. Fulfill my joy, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. God's will for believers is not for the flock to be agitated with tension and friction that prevents rest or interferes with rest that God wants to make possible. So that's something that's a problem for sheep. Now, what's the solution? The solution is the same as it was for fear. Instead of focusing on standing up for yourself, 
This passage presents lying down in his restful care as the objective that God has for you. He says, it says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He doesn't make me to stand up for myself and my rights. I'm talking about pecking order now within a local church, within a sheepfold. It's not to say there's never a time to stand up for yourself, but ultimately that's not what the passage is about. It's about resting and finding rest that God makes possible. Now how could you do that while you're concerned about defending yourself, defending what people think about you, what people said about you? The way you'll find rest is to give that over to the Lord, to trust his ability to defend you. If God is your defender, he certainly can undertake to deal with irritation towards other sheep He can certainly undertake to protect your status or rights within the flock. He doesn't need you to do that. So it's ultimately an issue of focus. That's the solution. It's an issue of focus. The shepherd's presence puts an end to all rivalry. The shepherd can handle irritating, arrogant, manipulative, aggressive, and pushy sheep. He doesn't need you to do it. The shepherd can handle those types of behaviors. Now, if that describes you, and I'll give you the list here again, irritating, arrogant, manipulative, aggressive, and pushy. Show of hands. (laughs) I have in my notes here, if that describes you, it does. Refocusing on the good shepherd will eliminate selfish snobbery, friction, and rivalry. That's what focusing on him will do for us. The humble heart walking quietly and contentedly in close and intimate companionship with Christ, is at rest, can relax, and is simply glad to lie down. How many of you would just rather leave the tension and the friction and the fear behind and just lie down in the place of rest that God makes possible? That can only be done through this close, intimate companionship with Christ, this relationship that God wants to be having with you. Now the last one was hunger. We need to pick up the pace, but hunger. Sheep will not lie down and rest unless they are free from hunger. Only the shepherd can lead sheep to fertile feeding grounds. Let me say that again. Only the shepherd can lead sheep to fertile feeding grounds. Sheep are too dumb to figure it out on their own. That's a fact. That's a fact about sheep. That's a fact about people. You're not going to lead yourself to fertile feeding grounds. Sheep always believe the grass is greener elsewhere. People always believe the grass is greener elsewhere. Left to our own devices, and sheep left to their own devices, they have a way of leaving the green pastures that the shepherd brought them to and searching out the dry and desolate, sun-baked and burnt, hard-as-a-rock pieces of ground where they're trying to find some nourishment. Does that describe you? God says you can find refreshment in this book. You can find peace through proximity with me. You can find refreshment by living life with me. You can be nourished by my truth. You can be nourished by living life with me. And we're rummaging around in the hard-packed deserts looking for nourishment and wondering why we're starving. And while you're starving, you're not resting peacefully. You're not lying down and getting that rest that God wants to provide you. We'll get to that a little bit more in a second. 
See, the primary place that the good shepherd leads his sheep is to his word. And places where his word is taught and fellowshiped around, that's where you can be free from hunger, is by spending time in his word. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You want to not be hungry? Get into the word. Jeremiah 15, 16a says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You want to not be hungry? Get into the word. Go to places where the word of God is taught. Go to places where the word of God can be fellowshipped around. Is that going to be places where there's no believers? You talk about all the things you make time for. Make time for fellowship with other believers. Come and gather when we gather. Come be a part of it, not out of a sense of self-righteous legalism, not because it makes, you think it makes you more spiritual than the next guy or makes you more, you know, have some elitism in your mind compared to other people. Oh, you're such a great Christian because you're gathering. Gather because you want to, because you see that this is the place you can be fed. This is the place that you can help avoid starving. The world is a wasteland. There's no place to get that nourishment. The places you can get it is in God's word, coming and hearing the word of God and fellowshipping with other believers. And that's why God says over and over and over again, he highlights the importance of being a part of a body of other believers and the importance of the local church. And you say, I can't. I just can't. I got bowling league. I'm sorry to anyone who's a bowler. I wasn't trying to single you out. I was once in a league called Barely Bowlers. I was so good. (laughs) Uh... Then my bowling ball got stolen and that was kind of the end of my bowling journey. I cracked 200 a couple of times. So they probably got a plaque there. I'm not sure. Do you see that nourishment comes from God's word? Are you searching for nourishment in the barren wasteland of the world? Rest is always going to elude you while your soul is famished. Let me say that again. Rest will always elude you while your soul is famished. You need the food. You need the nourishment so your belly can be full. When your belly's full, guess what? You sleep better unless you ate too much. So take that to heart. Now the last part of this is in green pastures. He makes it possible, so Yahweh makes it possible for me to lay down, find rest. That's the focus in green pastures. This phrase refers to a place of safety, security, a place of plenty, a place of sustenance and nourishment. The greater focus is security and rest. It's interesting as I studied this, it doesn't really say directly, you can imply it from the text, that this is about him providing a place to be nourished or to eat, but it actually talks about providing a place that you can lie down. Now, some of us know that it is possible to lie down and eat. Okay, show of hands. Okay, no. But the focus is he makes me to lie down. And the place that he does that happens to be described as a place of green pastures. It's a place of security, a place of comfort, a place of rest. But certainly the place of nourishment is in view too. It's a picture of of abundance, fertile and rich land. 
When I was thinking about that, it, I couldn't help but think about as we had finished Deuteronomy not long ago on Wednesday nights, our study of Deuteronomy, the, the promised land sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? The promised land was described as the place that was flowing with milk and honey. It was referred to as the place of God's rest, the place that was overflowing, a place where you can finally lie down, close your eyes, get that rest that your soul desperately is seeking and desperately needs. So I'd say a primary takeaway as we think about Jehovah or Yahweh makes it possible for me to lie down in this fertile green pasture so that I can rest. The shepherd makes rest possible. The shepherd makes rest possible. It's the shepherd that makes rest possible, not the sheep. The shepherd must undertake undertake to provide. Sheep are helpless without the shepherd. Don't come away from this thinking, I got to look for greener pastures to go lie down. You've tried that before. It was a barren wasteland that you found. It looked greener to you, but it wasn't greener. It was fake. It was artificial turf that you found. Yeah, you saw it in the distance. It looked green. You left behind the care of the good shepherd. You went to the place that looked better. It was fake grass. Everything the world says will be better is fake. It's phony. It will not satisfy. So instead of doing that again, instead of saying, I'm going on a quest for greener pastures, this time it will be successful. No, it won't. It'll be a flop and a failure just like last time. How about instead, stay restful, stay sleeping, don't even get up. Just lie down in the green pastures that Jehovah, Yahweh, wants to provide for you. He makes it possible for you to rest there. Stay there. He knows where the best place for you to be is. You don't know. So without him, I lose my way. It makes me think of that song when you think about sheep are helpless without the shepherd. Like a lamb who needs a shepherd, without him I lose my way. That's you and that's me. Here's a few verses to wind us down. Psalm 4.8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. How is that possible? For you, for you, O Lord. Here's Yahweh again. We know that because it was translated with capital L-O-R-D. For Yahweh makes it possible for me to dwell in safety. That's why. Jesus, when he's talking, as also our shepherd, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. It's the shepherd who makes rest possible. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. The one who makes this possible is God. He makes it possible for us to lie down and rest. Now, unfortunately, despite having a shepherd who provides all the sheep need, many Christians are still not content with his provision. They are somewhat dissatisfied. I say that because many of you understand God's goodness to some degree. 
but you're presently not resting in it completely. You're somewhat satisfied in what God has done in your life, but you're not willing to trust him with all of your life. To trust that he always knows best. And the reason I know that is because it's true of me too. Christians have a way of always feeling that somehow the grass beyond the fence must be a little bit greener. And does that describe you this morning? Wouldn't it be better to simply lie down in the fertile pasture he alone can provide and experience his rest? Instead of searching for something better, wouldn't it be better to just trust that he's provided the greenest, luscious, most fertile place for you to lie down and rest that's possible? And if you take him by faith and you take him at his word, you're not going to be looking for something better. You're going to say, this is as good as it possibly could be. Being with him, being in his presence, that's as good as it could possibly be and I'm just going to rest here. The alternative isn't, it isn't attractive. The alternative is a life of spiritual exhaustion. If you're feeling exhausted right now, why not lay down in the rest that he's making available to you right now? Like David, I hope that you're convinced to appropriate through faith the rest that God has offered you and God makes available. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we could spend here in your word. Thank you that you're such a good God who has provided to undertake for every single one of our needs. Thank you that you make rest possible. Thank you that you've provided green pastures for us to lie down and rest, knowing that you're present, and that because you're present, you can deal with any fear that we might have, any hunger that we might have, any friction that we might have with others, that you can undertake to alleviate all of those things and give us restful, peaceful sleep in your green pasture. Thank you that you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.